Welcome to the first mailbag episode of One Christian Thinks. It is what it sounds like. I'm going to be digging into the mailbag, so to speak, and interacting with your feedback from episodes one and two. I received some great feedback, so I want to go through a little bit of it with you. Let's start with feedback from episode one. A couple people wanted to know more about the distinctions between the primary, secondary, and tertiary doctrines. And the fourth category that I didn't name, but now I will, the fourth category is adiaphora. As a reminder, I defined primary doctrines as those which are essential to the Christian faith or salvation issues. Secondary doctrines are biblically important, but not salvation issues. Tertiary doctrines are those which are less important and the Bible allows for wider interpretation. And the fourth category, adiaphora, are issues that Christians can be indifferent on. Now, perhaps the first thing here that I want to specify is that not everyone will agree about which doctrines fit where. But these distinctions still help us to realize that not every doctrine is absolutely essential to salvation. Doctrines are on a type of spectrum, from primary doctrines to adiaphora. So, individuals or denominations might disagree on whether a certain doctrine is best seen as a secondary doctrine or a tertiary doctrine, for example. To help clarify these distinctions, I will give an example for each, working backwards. So first, adiaphora. One example I saw for adiaphora is what time a worship service is held. This is an issue that might end up as a heated debate within a congregation, but is not an essential doctrine. Whether your morning service is at 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. doesn't define you as a Christian. Next, a tertiary doctrine. This is a more important doctrine, but not pressing, and the Bible allows for wider interpretation. A common example of this is eschatology. Some of you might say, Eska what? Eschatology is theology that is primarily concerned with end times, what will happen before, during, and after Christ comes back. Generally speaking, there are three major positions, premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. This is a topic that some Christians will debate for hours. Whether you take one view or another depends on how you interpret certain Bible texts and can even affect how you live your life in certain cases. But, rightfully so, most people who engage in this discussion do not divide over it. Premillennials, postmillennials, and amillennials might go to the same church and call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you're unsure of where you stand in this discussion, don't worry, you can still be a Christian. That's why it's generally regarded as a tertiary doctrine. Now, on to secondary doctrines. These are important issues, but again, not salvation issues. These doctrines are important enough that people might divide along denominational lines because of them. The example I used last time was baptism, and I want to clarify that a little. The issue of pedobaptism, infant baptism of children of believers, or credo-baptism, faith-baptism, which by definition does not include infants, very often does divide Christians along denominational lines. Baptist churches practice only credo-baptism, 
while Protestants practice both, paedo-baptism in the case of an infant born to a believer, and credo-baptism in the case of an adult convert. I don't want to get into that debate here, but the reason this is a secondary issue is because it's not biblical to say that all Baptists will go to hell because they don't baptize the children of believers. Or, on the other hand, all Protestants will go to hell because they do. But, both Protestants and Baptists can still acknowledge that baptism is a command from Christ. Who you think is supposed to receive the sign of baptism is largely dependent on your view of covenant theology. But, regardless of covenant theology, both Baptists and Protestants can agree with Romans 10 verse 9, where it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raises him from the dead, you will be saved. Which in one sentence is the essence of the primary doctrines. Primary doctrines are those doctrines which one must believe to be a Christian. These are the largest doctrines, so to speak, which, for example, define the differences between Christianity and atheism, or Christianity and pantheism. They answer questions like, does God exist? Did Christ die for your sins? Is the resurrection from the dead a reality or a lie? But even inside this category, not all Christians are in agreement. For example, some might say that the Apostles' Creed neatly summarizes all primary doctrines, while other Christians say no. The one line in there, the one about Christ descending into hell, is not biblically supported, so it can't be a primary doctrine. Keep in mind, these are not hard and fast categories. They just help to classify doctrines by importance. Now you might say, everything is a salvation issue. Christianity must affect our whole life. Yes, Christianity rightfully must affect every aspect of our life. But not every decision we make is a salvation issue. So, some people only go to church once on Sunday, some go twice. Both might have reasons for the decision they make, and both can still be Christians, confessing the name of Christ. Some Christians biblically refuse to drink any alcohol, while others do not. Both can have biblical reasons for making that decision. Both can still be Christians, again, confessing the name of Christ. Neither of these issues are unimportant, but likewise, neither of these issues will determine one's salvation on its own. So, now moving on to the second episode, examining civil disobedience. I received a lot of great feedback, so thanks for that. A few people commented that the episode was pretty jam-packed with ideas. It was quite a bit to take in all at once. I totally get that. There is so much to these theologies. Many books have been written about them. I managed to find a PDF download of Rutherford's book, Lex Rex. I referenced it in the second episode. It discusses these issues a lot more comprehensively. That PDF was over 400 pages long. So to say that my second episode was an introduction is a, a huge understatement. Um, but I did my best to introduce them. And of course... This results in a lot of info all at once. If you had to listen to it more than once to catch the concepts, don't feel bad. I think I read 
half a dozen articles and listened to several hours of other podcasts before I, ha I felt I had a decent grasp of the concepts. I also received some criticisms on the ideas themselves. To those of you who gave me that criticism, I thank you for doing it in a very gracious manner. I want to address some of the criticisms I received to try better explain things. Hopefully my responses show as much grace as your criticisms did. Also, I want to be clear that I'm not quoting anyone directly because I received similar criticisms from multiple people. I ended up just paraphrasing them. So if I misunderstood or mischaracterized your argument, please feel free to let me know. The first criticism I received is that by using the distinction of God's revealed will versus his hidden will, we can do away with pretty much any authority structure that exists. Then don't we just have anarchy with everyone doing what is right in his own eyes? So I'll answer the first part first. I want to compare the command to submit to the government to the command for wives to submit to husbands and also the command for children to submit to parents. Now tell me, in a situation where a husband deliberately oversteps his biblical authority, physically abuses his wife with no sign of repentance, and forbids her from leaving the house, telling anyone or seeking help, does that woman still have to submit? Or in a situation where a parent oversteps his or her biblical authority and abuses his or her children, and again, forbids the children from seeking help elsewhere, do those children have to submit? If either of the abused parties disobeyed and went to seek help, should they be ignored because they were no longer submitting? I think the vast majority of us would say, no, of course not. That wife and those kids need help, which might even include helping them get out of the situation. And I can theologically support that by saying that the husband-wife relationship and the parent-child relationship are both ordained by God's revealed will. And because they are ordained by God's revealed will, there is a way out in case the authority figure oversteps his or her biblical God-ordained bounds. And likewise, the government. Governments can and sometimes do abuse their citizenry, going beyond their biblical bounds. And so their citizens have a way out. But wouldn't this lead to tyranny? No. I don't think it does. Why not? For two reasons. First, the government still has power to punish. If you rightfully disobey the law, you may still be subject to punishment from the government. The defense of, I don't have to listen to you because you overstepped your biblical bounds, probably won't hold up in court. So there's that. But even more so, in our disobedience, we are still subject to God's law and his commands. So disobedience wouldn't end up in tyranny at all. In fact, proper civil disobedience would probably end up in something that is closer to what God intended for earthly societies. For this to be true, we must only be disobedient out of love, love rooted in God's word. Another criticism. Doesn't this explanation make a clear passage quite convoluted? I mean, Romans 13 seems quite clear just reading it at face value. Why make it unclear? Your interpretation sounds freeing, but true freedom is to run in the path of God's commands, as in Psalm 
119 verse 32, not to reason away his clear direction. On top of that, the text clearly says that the reason we must submit is because the authority is instituted by God, which is a pretty timeless command. You can't just reason this away. Yes, the ideas I presented do seem like that, don't they? It becomes a little harder to understand what the passage means if we view it through the lens of God's revealed will or his hidden will. But does that mean it's incorrect? And yes, the text clearly says that we must submit because the authority is instituted by God. But the whole discussion actually starts at that point with the question, by what will did God institute the authority and what significance does this have? To view this discussion in a bit of a different way, a divinely appointed authority, any divinely appointed authority, whether that's government, a pastor, a husband, a parent, or any other authority, has divinely appointed limits to their authority. For example, a husband's authority does not extend to the ability to treat his wife any way he likes. His authority is very limited, specifically by the command to love his wife. When a divinely appointed authority goes beyond its divinely appointed limits, they are no longer an authority in that area, but are acting simply as a power-tripping individual and can thus be ignored. For example, an elder in a church who tries to force someone to take a certain job offer can be ignored in that circumstance. That's just not his area of authority. And the same idea holds true for the government. This is why the question of by which will God instituted civil government must be answered first. And then through that understanding, we can reach a deeper understanding of the rest of the text. I acknowledge that the idea that I briefly presented, that the Roman church was told to submit only because they were too small to overthrow the massive Roman government, does ring a little hollow. But that's only one idea. There are other ways to understand the word submit in the context of God's revealed or hidden wills. I want to just quote a few sentences from the New Bible Commentary by D.A. Carson and R.T. France, because it does a good job of summarizing four different possibilities for the word submit. And I quote, Paul's teaching in this paragraph appears to be quite straightforward and is indeed paralleled in other New Testament books. See especially 1 Peter 2 verse 13 to 17. Nevertheless, the apparently absolute command to do what rulers tell us to do creates problems for most Christians. These problems are created not only by our experience. Many believers must live under dictatorial and rabidly anti-Christian governments, but by the New Testament itself which elsewhere holds up disobedience to rulers in some situations as commendable, Acts 4, verse 19 and 20, and the book of Revelation. The problem thus created by Romans 13, verse 1 to 7, has been solved in several ways. Some argue that Paul is commanding obedience to government only when it is fulfilling its God-given functions of rewarding good and punishing evil. While there may be some truth to this, Paul does not make Christian obedience contingent on governmental behavior. Others think that Paul may be restricting himself only to an immediate situation in the Roman community. But the universal language of the text, everyone, no authority, in verse 1, 
makes this unlikely. A more attractive alternative is that Paul's demand that Christians submit to government means simply that they recognize government's rightful place within the hierarchy of relationships established by God, a hierarchy at whose pinnacle is God. When, therefore, government usurps its place and commands us to do something contrary to our ultimate Lord, we are free, indeed obligated, to disobey. This view may, however, unduly weaken the meaning of submit. Perhaps the best solution, then, is to view Romans 13 verse 1 to 7 as a general statement about how the Christian should relate to government, with exceptions to this advice assumed, but not spelled out here. Unquote. So, according to D.A. Carson and R.T. France, there are four ideas, four ways on how to understand the word submit in Romans 13 verse 1 to 7. Uh, they each seem to have their weaknesses, but the way that you understand the word submit, I believe, must fit in with your understanding of God's hidden will or revealed will. Now, secondly, if we consider the typical interpretation of the text, that we must obey the government unless the government commands us to disobey God, this principle also isn't as clear as it seems. Take just the pandemic. The government ordered many people to stop working and instead gave them a government-issued check as income. So, the government forced people to disobey the biblical norm of working to support yourself. Seen in part of the positive aspect of the fourth commandment, six days you shall labor and do all your work. Or, in 2 Thessalonians 3, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Why was it okay to obey that governmental command and simply stop working? Or, because of the government commands, it was essentially forbidden to practice hospitality, to show love to others in that manner. You might say, obeying the government was loving others to help prevent the spread of the virus. But others might say, not at all. Just look at the unintended consequences. Depressions and suicide attempts skyrocketed. Spousal and child abuse rates did the same. How can these consequences be considered even remotely loving? So you see, the default interpretation of Romans 13, when applied practically, also isn't quite as clear as it sounds. Now, none of this stuff is easy. These are ideas that should rightfully be studied and prayerfully wrestled with. But it's likely that with today's political climate and direction, having a solid understanding of civil obedience or disobedience will become more and more important. I'm not saying you have to agree with the ideas I presented, just that these issues are important to think through and discuss. So I hope these points provided a little more clarity for the first two episodes. I want to thank everyone who responded with support. It means a lot and helped provide a little more motivation to keep working. And thanks to everyone who responded with criticism and other feedback. I particularly appreciate the gracious manner in which you responded. Thanks for being part of the conversation. I truly appreciate it. Again, as always, Share and subscribe using your favorite podcast service. There's also a One Christian Thinks Facebook page, so go ahead and check that out. If you're on Facebook, it's a great way to receive notifications and updates of new episodes. Feel free to comment on that page as well. 
I may not respond directly on that page, but I will see your comments. Otherwise, you can email me at OCT at allmail.net. Again, that's OCT, which stands for One Christian Thinks, at allmail.net. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep thinking.